Well, good morning, everyone. Invite you to begin making your way back towards your seats. Also, invite you uh, to grab a Bible from uh, one of the Bible carts and also a piece of paper and a pencil. So, you can either do that now or you can do it in the next couple of minutes. Uh, but you'll need those as we go through the rest of our morning. And this morning, our teaching text reader is Noah. And... He is going to read our story from Nehemiah. Nehemiah, verse 32 and th through 33 and 38. Now therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, and on our ancestors, all you people, from the days of the kings of Aresia until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and priests, are fixing their seals to it. This is the word of the Lord. Greetings, friends and family of Mars Hill Bible Church. It is a joy to be with you, even on this video. You see, uh, myself and the family have been and are, and hopefully will not forever be, in the COVID quarantine. So it is good to be with you, even in this way. Uh, we have been doing a little bit of the Nehemiah shuffle, right? Kind of like this, build the wall. And uh, last week, Kyle ended up finishing the books. We're doing it a bit out of order. And today, we're going to rewind just a little bit bit uh, to some of that uh, two-thirds of the way through. Now, being at home, which is mostly where I have been at home, in my home, uh, for many days now, I, I get an interesting perspective on my kids and how they interact with each other. You may have seen this pattern if you've observed kids at all, um, especially siblings, right? So there's all is well, all is calm, and then there's an inciting incident, whether it's a, a poke, a pinch, a hit, a taking of the toy, whatever it is, there's an inciting incident and things go south. So then parent steps in, I come to the children and I reorient them to who they are, like this is your sister, this is your brother, not the names you have called them. And then there's a chance to invite them to repent and forgive one another. And then there's a chance to say, you know what, this is not how we want to live together. Let's renew our promise to be siblings and love each other and be kind. And so, you know, we rehearse this over and over and over again and probably will for many years to come. And yet, this week, when we've been at home a little more, I've seen this play out, and, and as I was walking kids through these particular steps, one of our sweet children was like, why would I promise not to do that? They'll just do it to me again, or I'll probably do that to them again. And it struck me that... The, what a fascinating thing that I am, I too know that they will perpetrate pain or insult to the other child again. And yet we go through this rehearsal of these motions, re-promising, re-covenanting, if you will, to not be that way, even though we know we may break it again. Pointing to the fact that it may not be all tied up in our promise anyway. 
something larger afoot than our own commitments. So come with me, if you will, to the book of Nehemiah once again. We're going to start in chapter 8. We're going to look at 8, 9, and 10. So we, this is a fascinating time in the book. We, we want to pick up in 8, chap, uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 9. This is where Ashley left off two weeks ago. The Israelites had just heard the law read. You know, Ezra, he, the teacher, he gets up on this big, tall, raised platform like a big deer blind, and he reads the word of the Lord for hours and end to the people, and they respond with weeping. This inciting event. And here we go. We follow this up. This is verse 9. This is a holy day, Ezra says to them. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Fast forward a little bit, and we come to verse 13 there. They gather around again, and they read a part of the law. They had found written in the law, this is verse 14, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. Now, hang on. We just built this big city. These folks are probably like, I like this new fireplace I got going on. And you're telling me that because we read this book, which made us cry, we're going to come back together and it's going to command us in this ancient commandment to go live in temporary shelters. Yes. And I think this is part of this fascinating paradigm that comes up for us in scripture, where after this inciting event of the law being read, where there is something that's ripped open inside the people, there's a chance, there's an option here for a reorientation to what's real, to who you are and whose you are. You'll see this on the screen. And then we move into a mode of repentance, where the people repent for verse after verse after verse for their actions and the actions of their ancestors. And then they move into a section of renewal where they recommit to the covenant of God, to what God has been doing. We want to be part of that. We're committing again. And so we see this reorientation, repentance, and renewal, kind of like I've seen with my children. And we've seen the end of this book. Kyle went all the way through the end last week. And even though they recommit, they renew the covenant, Nehemiah comes back. And they have failed. The house was in disorder and disarray. And they have then broken the covenant they just made. So with such great intentions just a few chapters before. I think this story is common for us today. That we too find ourselves in moments when we seek to reorient ourselves. We need something outside of us to tell us who we are and whose we are. Move to repentance and then to renewal. So let's start with this inciting event. The law is read for the people of Israel. It's one of those times when they weren't expecting this. This wasn't something that had happened recently at all. And yet the text tells us that the people were weeping. It's one of those times when, when something hits you unexpectedly. Maybe you're watching the news and we could not have foreseen the, the violent reaction that such great violence elicits from us. 
Or maybe you're in the midst of a conversation with somebody and this great emotion starts welling up in you. Or maybe there's a moment when you feel like God is saying something and it's breaking something open for you. And you say, this, something's happening right now. I don't have words for it. I don't know what to do with it. But something is happening. Some folks have called this a kairos moment or these moments when heaven and earth come into this thin space and God is speaking. And we want to pay attention. And I think that's what's happening in this text in Nehemiah. The people need to pay attention. They are weeping, and I'm sure many of them know not why they weep. And so God follows up this disorienting moment with a commandment for reorientation, for these people of Israel to engage in something larger than themselves that reorients them to who they are and whose they are. This is called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Now, you'll see here on the screen above you, uh, or with me, I don't know where it is when I'm on video, so somewhere around here, TikTok it, there's going to be a picture. And it's going to be of these booths. And this is still practiced. The festival of Sukkot or tabernacles, tabel, tabernacles or booths is still practiced today. And this is where it gets practiced in the scriptures. Uh, the first time in a long time where the commandment is to build a temporary structure outside the home, even your nice new home in the new Israel, or the new Jerusalem. Uh, not the new New Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem let me hear Nehemiah. Anyway, to build this structure outside of your home and to dwell in it, to live in it, may not be 24 hours a day, but to eat your meals there. And the key, as you see in this current slide, is that it has walls, but it's an open air structure, and you need to be able to see the sky. Because what this is doing for the Israelites is putting them back in a place where they remember the journey in the wilderness. After the Exodus, who is this God who has brought us into freedom and leads us step by step? What happens in the Exodus is what these folks need to remember here is that God is showing them, you are my people, a holy people, my treasured possession as the text says. And they are coming into these booths to remember that wilderness journey, to be reoriented to what is real, to who they are, whose they are as God's chosen people. All right, we're going to pause it there for just a moment. This is where you need your piece of paper. And uh, kids in the room, I really need you on this one. Uh, because you probably have built a booth at some point. A Sukkot, a tree fort, or a fort out of your couch cushions, or a blanket as my daughter did yesterday in her bedroom. And so what I would love for you to do here as we continue through this teaching, as Tim continues in this story, is to draw a booth, to draw a tabernacle, to draw a tree fort. What would it look like for you if you were someone who could build one of these outside of your home? or in your backyard, or in your cul-de-sac? What would that look like? And for those of you who have young people sitting next to you, I invite you to wonder and to imagine together, what would you talk about as you dwelled in this booth? Or perhaps for the rest of us, what might have been the conversations that the people of Israel had here in the book of Nehemiah as they dwelled in their booths? 
What were the stories that they told? What were the memories that came back into their minds that they shared with one another? And what stories would you tell? If these are stories of reorientation, of looking back, what stories would you tell with one another? And so I invite you here for the next couple of minutes. Uh, we're actually going to take a pause, a break, and to share with one another, share with the people next to you uh, these stories. What, what, let's wonder together, what would we say? What stories would we tell? And what would our booths look like? So kids or artists in the room or whoever wants to draw, invite you to draw that. And I would love to see those at the end of our gathering together. So invite you, share with one another. And so I wonder if when we find ourselves triggered, reacting, knowing something is not right, filled with righteous anger or indignation in response, 
there are tons of voices waiting to short circuit that moment for us and pull our attention and to polarize it in, an, in a fashion that's not helpful. But what we see here in the text is that at the moment of the inciting event, of the weeping of Israel, they are sent to have a great meal, to remember that God is good, the story they are living in is good, and then they are sent into these booths to remember in a space that's outside of their own, who they are and whose they are. It is a grounding piece of the story where they're able to then say, okay, I, I'm dealing with this incident, this anger, this longing, this I need to do something. And yet God is placing me in a place of reflection where I can remember out of a true sense of identity rooted in the Lord, now where do I go with that? This is this step we see of reorientation in the booths. Now, after there's this great weeping, there's something the Israelites need to do. They find themselves in these outdoor structures, looking at the sky, remembering the one who has led them faithfully, both to that moment and through the centuries, with the pillar of fire. The one who has spoken to them and kept God's promises. And in light of this, they move to this next thing. And it is repentance. Because in light of the mercy that God has just shown them, in light of the story that they see themselves now living in, they are able to name for themselves the incongruities they see. They're able to say, oh, this is the narrative. This is who God is. This is who I am in the midst of that. And therefore, these are the pieces of my life, my behavior, my world, my society, these systems that I interact with that don't fit well in God's grand story. And it moves them to repentance. And so they come together as a people and they repent not only for their own sins, but of those of their ancestors, of the systems they have inherited and perpetuate. They come in, this is in chapter 9. The, it, it, the heading in the text is, the Israelites confess their sins. And they come together and eventually they, they kind of name who's all there in this text. And then in verse 5, they say, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who from everlasting, who is from everlasting to everlasting. So they begin their repentance in this praise, like, Oh Lord, you are the one who has endured, and you are faithful, and therefore we are able to see the pieces in our story and our behavior that do not fit. They're able to then confess that instead of living in the simplicity of God's narrative shown to them in the tabernacle or in the booth in the Sukkot, that I have been living this way. I have been putting my hope in the stock market, in national or international security, in this relationship. I have been putting my hope in this narrative, this public persona that I have been crafting and creating. And Lord, those things are incongruent with your kingdom. And they're able to then repent. And so they continue on. If you pick it up in uh, 9, verse 9, they start with the Exodus. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry which they referred to earlier in this, in this book as well. And then you sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. The fast forward to verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai. They're pointing to the promises God has made and met them in the wilderness. And then they get to this verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stubborn, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. And they go on to recount all of Israel's journey saying, you, Lord, have met us. You have been faithful. 
and then our behavior has not measured up to that. But then we were disobedient and rebelled against you. This is verse 26. And they, our ancestors killed your prophets who had warned them to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. And so they go on. And what we see here is this fascinating thing where they are recognizing that the world they inherit, the systems in which they participate, are indeed broken and need repentance. They are recognizing that something needs to be restored here. And so therefore they are putting it again before the Lord saying these things are not congruent with the values of your kingdom. Earlier this week, I was listening to the news and I was finding in myself an increased anxiety I don't know how to live in a world that is as disruptive. I don't know about you, but I, most of my life has had comfort and relative peace and stability and America with international leverage and centrality in the world. And as those things are challenged or are found to be diminished or certainly found wanting in the narrative they're trying to sell us, it occurred to me that this is not how the majority of Christians through the majority of the world and world history have lived. And so this faith that I'm proclaiming that I want to dedicate myself to is going to point out many incongruities with the, with the expectations and hopes I have in my Western American narrative. And so I found myself in a place I needed to be reoriented, to come back to a text like this and say, God, who, who you are is who you have always been. Where then is my story out of step with that? Where am I attempting to write a, what I think a better narrative is? And it moved me to deep repentance and recognizing that systems of violence and oppression and financial gain are things that I have been part and parcel to that I didn't cook them up, but I'm a piece of that. And that requires repentance. And I also found that that led to behaviors, things I did and left undone that needed repentance of on an individual level as well. And that's what we have modeled for us in this text is that as God reorients us to the good story that God is writing, who we are and whose we are, there's a moment for us to say, Lord, but we have not kept, kept our, our side. We have not been who you've called us to be. And that can take some time to recognize those things. Thank goodness we have the words here in Nehemiah and words throughout the Psalms, which we'll be digging into as a congregation this summer to give us some language for how things are not right and how they're meant to be. But it doesn't end there. Then God invites the people to a next step. We hit this near the end of chapter 9, verse 38. After this long litany of repentance where the sins of the past and the present are, are brought to bear on this particular moment, then, verse 38, in view of all of this, what the text says, we are making a binding agreement, putting in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. You hear echoes of, of Deuteronomy, you're welcome, Kyle, where uh, in the Shema, 
that we're, we're promising something that will be on our foreheads and on our doorposts and on our gates. That there is this thing we are committing ourselves to, to love the Lord your God again. And, and so what we see here after this reorientation of active repentance, we see this move of renewal. We see the text inviting the people back to the covenant, to the promise. The faithful God has remained faithful to the covenant and is reminding the people, come back. Remember who you are. Remember who I am. And then come back and be a part of this living promise. And so the people gather together. The priests and the Levites, and, this, and the text goes on in chapter 10, names all the people who are there. And then they begin to promise again, this is how we are going to live. We are going to remember the law of the Lord who has shown us how to love God and love neighbor above all. And we are going to order our life accordingly. Some of the things that get highlighted here is not worshiping other gods. And then they move into this big section on generosity that we will live as your people. God, in light of all you have done. We too will give. It reminds me of the text in Romans 12, 1 through 2. In light of God's mercy, we will then offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So there's a generosity that begins to well up in the people as a response, as part of their renewal, the renewal of the covenant. New covenant in this text, new covenant in generosity. Over here we have the new covenant in my blood is what Jesus says as he moves to a moment of covenant renewal at the end of the great feast where people were reminded of God's faithfulness and Israel's uh, unfaithfulness and then they move to repentance and then at the end of that meal Jesus takes the cup and he says this is the new promise. Come and take and eat and drink and be part of what I am doing now. Because there is always an, uh, a renewal moment at the end. And that's good news for me. And I hope it's good news for you as the ones who have inevitably, like we see at the end of Nehemiah in chapter 13, we have not kept our promises. Like my kids who have yet again bugged their sister even after promising not to. And so we get to that question again of why do we keep doing this? Is this one of those crazy cycles where we just go through it and rehearse again and commit to something we're not going to actually keep? So the good news for us, friends, is that this, this rehearsal, this call to repentance and to renewal and to remembrance of who we are and whose we are, it forms something in us, in its rehearsing. In the midst of doing this, in the midst of recalling all the works of the Lord, Israel is formed in a way that is again renewing their trust in the one who has not left them. And they're recommitting themselves. Yes, they know. Yes, we know, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, that, that they will fail. And again and again. But the story, friends, it forms us, but more importantly, it shows us that the goal of the Christian life is not about being better at keeping our commitments, but becoming more connected and in deeper communion with the one who never breaks his commitments. Is that that there's an invitation is no less than come and be reunited in, in deeper fellowship with Jesus, the King and Lord of the universe. 
Come and be a part of that. Come and taste and see what is good. Come and lean into the promise that while we will not keep it, will be kept for us and has, be kept, has been kept for us in the person of Jesus Christ who did for us what we could not do for ourselves is held up this promise with God so that we may enjoy eternal life in the name of Jesus Christ. And so what Israel's rehearsing in Nehemiah is the very thing that we rehearse today. And that you have an invitation to participate in this morning, this evening, and in this week ahead. To be reoriented to who Christ is and who God says you are. Beloved, forgiven, welcomed, invited, included, and loved. And that gives birth to our repentance as a people, a chance to say, Lord, we have not stewarded this well. We have not been like you. We have created and perpetuated systems of injustice. There are ways that we are broken we don't even know. And yet you, O Lord, are faithful. And then we have a moment of covenant renewal where we are reminded of Christ's presence and promise to us, where we are fed at the table. And again, we rehearse this good story to get it inside of us so that we know no matter what happens or what we get caught up into or what addictions keep surfacing for us, there is a God who continues to invite us back to the table because at the table is not just a meal, it is a new promise that God's way of being will be what we are invited into. That our commitment matters, but it is not the highest value. But our communion with the one who never breaks the commitments is. And that invitation is open to you, as it has been open for centuries to the people of Israel and to all of us.